from MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The Pascagoula River Audubon Center, located in Moss Point, is the gateway to the Pascagoula River and its habitats. Today, from the Audubon Center, we welcome program manager Aaron Parker. She'll talk about what makes the Pascagoula River unique, what creatures call it home, and how Mississippi benefits from this free-flowing treasure. You can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The Pascagoula River Audubon Center, located in Moss Point, is the gateway to the Pascagoula River and all its habitats. So today from the center, we welcome program manager Erin Parker. She's here to tell us about what makes the Pascagoula River unique, the creatures that call it home, and how Mississippi benefits from this free-flowing treasure. You can always join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, uh, any events uh, that you wanted to talk about? Let's see. The Ripley's Believe It or Not exhibit is at the Natural Science Museum, and it's a lot of fun. I was there Friday night and got a good taste of it, so I think it's something that every age group would enjoy. And we've been consumed with the fireflies. If you're in any any place in the state that's got um, a little bit of dark woods, get outside. This is just ideal time for them. We've had the synchronous fireflies have kind of, they their season moves up the state, I guess, as as a lot of things do, as it warms up, as the nights warm up. And so right now, central Mississippi is really, there are really a lot of synchronous fireflies. Um, I can mention along the Natchez Trace, south of Clinton, and then um, the area right there behind where the Mississippi Craftsman's Guild building, the Craft mm-hmm. Center. If you go on the Natchez Trace side, you know, there's a, a turnout called Old Trace, and you can walk between the two buildings. All of that area has been really good the last few nights. But it will probably only be good. You know, they only are out a maximum of 14 days. So I would say if you want to see them, get out there over this weekend or whatever. And they don't start blinking until about 9 o'clock, 9.30. Any idea how the rain might affect them? In fact, we were out there last night. Um, We've been out twice now when they were when it was raining on them, and it it doesn't affect them as much as it does the viewers. (laughs) I would say they'll they'll kind of go to the ground and 
hide out is when it's raining hard, but then as soon as it stopped raining, they were right back out blinking. Okay. And a few, uh, I guess they're under leaves and things, and they were still blinking. You uh-huh. couldn't see the synchronicity until it stopped raining again. But, I mean, I guess that's, that's their thing to do, so you would think that even in rain that they would, mm-hmm. you know, if they can do it, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And we noticed last year, after a rain, the next night seemed to there seemed to be more of them. So I think probably the moisture is good for them. The little larvae are down in the leaf litter, and it may be that it needs to be a certain amount of moisture for them to emerge. Also in the news, I, I saw this online but didn't didn't click on it, but it was, um, was it an orangutan or some sort of uh, monkey-type uh, animal that escaped uh, from the Sandy, uh, San Antonio airport? He somehow got out of his crate and apparently was running around the airport some, so... Um, I might have met him a baboon. I'm trying to remember. I, like I said, I looked at it but didn't really click on the on the link. But uh, that's interesting to me because it, it looked uh, like a macaque or one of those fairly large, but what, it wasn't a baboon. Okay, All right. fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, it wasn't a baboon. But uh, yeah, those things can got some pretty good fangs on them and can do some damage, and they're very strong. And that, to me, is one of my favorite parts when you go to a zoo because you know their uh, their behavior is is so interesting. I remember. I think it was the uh, St. Louis Zoo. The monkeys in their cage were all facing away from the viewing thing, and it was almost as if they're saying, "We're tired of you people staring in at our living quarters, so we're going to protest by turning around the other way and showing you our back." So we'll strike. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the other interesting thing, they're in the Memphis Zoo. My brother and I went there a couple of years ago, and there was an orangutan who has who sits up in his uh, tree and has this blanket or something that he puts on covers himself with and on facebook i think this year i saw someone and, and someone said oh we saw this arena it was so funny and i'm thinking that's the same that's one it. and he's still wearing that same blanket do you so, think he does it to hide i think so yeah too much too much interaction I yeah guess. so uh but so security uh, blanket it, that's interesting. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Major, we were talking about this uh, during the break, that uh, traveling with your pet uh, in the summertime, uh, what are some things to think about if you decide to bring your pet along? I guess water, certainly, and food would be something, uh, and you want to have them well secured if, if they're in a car, I would guess. Right. You know, that's that's some very important security. Uh, it's good to have some trials before you take a 400-mile trip uh, with a cat or a dog by trials, uh, short trips. Uh, most animals adapt really well. A lot of them will go to sleep uh, in the car and uh, do quite well. Others hyperventilate and uh, really get excited in the car. Security, uh, anytime you uh, have a cat, you need to have a carrier, uh, even if you think your cat is going to be fine loose in the car things can happen. <clears throat> they could always get under the brake pedal, uh, get on the dash. Uh, cat's going to do pretty much what they want to do anyway. And I think it's better to have an ample size carrier with a little bit of food. Don't, don't put a lot of food and, you know, certainly if you can put it, work it out to have a litter box, that's great for the cat. Your dogs, uh, definitely on the leash, uh, no matter how good they are, uh, off leash, have them on a leash. And I recommend having, uh, a, microchip and in all of these pets that you're traveling with in case something should happen and they get away. And I'd pick a place when you're walking your dog that uh, maybe everybody else hadn't walked in. So just to help try to avoid any type of disease and clean up after your pet when they go. 
Also, I would think, too, that if it's, uh, you know, a lot of times you see the, the dog walk in the rest areas or whatever, it might kind of drive the dog nuts. If he's all of a sudden <laughs> smelling the other dogs that have been there, he might want to make it into an adventure. Uh, then we also talked about if you choose to travel without your pet, uh, and you were saying that cat's a little bit easier to kind of uh, leave at home and have someone check on a, a dog. Would you recommend more so maybe boarding a dog? You know, a dog, two things you can do. Number one, certainly if you have a boarding facility that you trust, uh, that's excellent. Uh, I recommend taking your own dog's food because if you change foods uh, while they're boarding, certainly it could cause some uh, GI upsets. The other alternative is to have a house that or uh, somebody that comes by several times a day uh, lets them get out, exercise, and uh, checks on them. So those are two good alternatives. Cats, uh, one of the attractive things about cats is that, you know, a two-day trip is not a big deal. A uh, weekend trip is not a big deal for the cat. They may get angry because you're not there, but certainly ample food and water and uh, litter box facilities, they can do quite well for uh, two to three days. Yeah, I've, I've learned uh, to make sure that you have cleaned out their litter box uh, to completely before you leave because... Uh, that's obviously one thing that, well, that makes sense. You know, they want a nice clean place to go, but uh, right. you certainly don't want any surprises in that area uh, when you go back in from wherever you're going. We've got some open phone lines. We're looking for your input this morning on Creature Comforts. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Dr. Major here, always ready to help you with your pet questions. And today we're going to be visiting with Aaron Parker, who is the program manager at the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. So, Aaron, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, if you would, um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and sort of what your day to day activities are at the center. Sure. So, um, my career path has been meandering, as many people are in my field. Um, I've been a high school science teacher. Um, I moved down here in 2015 to take this job. Worked in nature, the field of nature centers in education and environmental education since I was 15. Um, and I've always taught about water. So, when this job opened up at the Pascagoula River Audubon Center, um, it's very much based on connecting people to water. Uh, in a variety of ways, from little kids just getting out and exploring um, to senior citizens really understanding the issues that are facing our river systems today. Um, I would say one of the best things and most challenging things about my job is that every day is completely different than any other day. Um, we're open to the public, so I teach programs, uh, I run classes, I help develop workshops, I clean the turtle tank. Uh, every day is different, so... <laughs> So what makes the Pascagoula unique within the contiguous U.S.? Sure. So the Pascagoula River is claimed to fame as it's the longest free-flowing river in the contiguous 48 states. It's about 82 miles long, um, which isn't a particularly long river system, but there are no dams or levees along that length, uh, which allows the water to do what the water's always done. So flooding these bottomland hardwoods, um, it provides really uh, incredibly diverse habitat. Um, that's probably the most important thing. And so free-flowing, meaning that it does have no um, man-made uh, barriers. Sure, exactly. So um, the even the um, water entering the Pascagoula is undammed at this point. So. 
Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with Aaron Parker from the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. If you have any questions about the Pascagoula River, give us a call. As I mentioned, Dr. Major here, ready to take your pet questions. And we always like to hear about what you're seeing uh, when you go out uh, in, the, in nature here in Mississippi, what sort of wildlife uh, encounters you might have had. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number, it's one 672 7464 We'll be back with more of the show after this. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest in studio today is Erin Parker. She is the program manager for the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. So we got a lot going on this morning. If you have a pet question, you can call in. Uh, any wildlife uh, experiences that you'd like to share with us, and also questions about uh, the Pascagoula River and uh, the Audubon Center. So give us a call if you'd like to join in. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can always email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. In fact, we got a couple of emails from last week that I'd like to follow up on. Uh, this one says, it was sent last Thursday, and it says, Wednesday night at the USM baseball game, we were suddenly surrounded by a cloud of what looked like flying ants or termites. Any idea of what those are? It's probably a termite season. <laughs> it's termite season. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. It's really cool to watch. And um, it's been my experience that almost always when that happens, you will find some predatory insects that come up like dragonflies hmm. to start eating the termites. And that is really cool. When you've got... I don't know, thousands of termites, and then you got two dozen dragonflies going through there, boom, 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 <laughs> eating them up. So you could compare that to, to uh, could compare it to an anchovy swarm with uh, swordfish or whatever other fish going through it. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, right. The dragonflies yeah. are the predators mm-hmm. in that case. And those termites might be annoying to us. They're a really important food source to a right. lot of animals. We've watched swallows mm-hmm. just surround termite swarms, just snapping them up, just like candy. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to, and it's really good that it's right here in the spring when our resident birds are starting to raise in families. Mm-hmm. They oh, need yeah. that extra energy. And I think that the flying ant is really, I think, an apt uh, description because I remember the first time I saw uh, termites, the same thing. They do it do does look like ants with wings. So mm-hmm. we we think it was probably was termites. So Carolyn, thanks for that email. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Sharon has called in this morning. Good morning, Sharon. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi, Sharon, are you with us? Left. Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was interested in your comment about leaving your cats briefly. I was on the road a lot uh, a while ago, and I have a, a dog and a cat that were raised together, and my cat, actually there's two cats, but the male's a big cabbie with extra thumbs, and he's very much like a dog. I noticed that when I'd come back, my other cat would act like a normal cat. She'd be all over you, and then she'd, like, ignore <coughs> you and pounce. This guy, Spanky is his name, would cry, look at me, cry, look at me, and be joined to my hip for at least eight days. And it finally dawned on me, I have to take him. It's, it's too traumatic because I would take my dog. I'd put a leash on him and a 
collar, the trading, you know, harness collar, and put him in the car with me next time and stop off beside the road. And he taught me how to walk a cat on a leash. (laughs) That was my comment. Yes, you have to be very careful, and I'm sure you are. With a cat on a leash, if they freak out, uh, some people use a harness, and certainly that can, they can slip out of most anything. So sounds like you've got a uh, dog cat, and that's, that's very good. <laughs> well, we actually, I lived in a smaller town um, before that had a lot of sidewalks that I'd walk with my dog. And if he was out, Spanky would follow us, walk right along, or he'd see something and run off. Two blocks later, he'd show back up. He would, he would always go and walk with us. All right. It's a unique cat. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Sharon. And, you know, it's uh, interesting because, uh, like a lot of cat owners, uh, Sharon was taught by Spanky, you know, to uh, <laughs> to go out on the walk. So uh, it's amazing how they are uh, gr- such great manipulators. Uh, but uh, I think that's part of the charm of, of owning one. Uh, we're visiting today with uh, Erin Parker from the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. She's the program manager there. Erin, uh, what is the definition of the term watershed? So a watershed is an area of land where every drop of water or precipitation that falls ends up in the same body of water. Uh, I always think people have a better um, – it's easier to imagine a watershed out west where there's really steep geography and you can see the effect of gravity. The snow that falls on this mountain is going to end up in this river. But even down on the coast where we are with the Pascagoula River Audubon Center – um, we, we're still within a watershed, and everything is connected. So everything upstream impacts everything downstream. So we all live in a watershed, even if we don't see that that connection uh, on the landscape. So how much of Mississippi is drained by the Pascagoula River Basin watershed? It's actually about 20% of Mississippi, so it's a huge um, amount of water volume that's moving through the southeastern corner of Mississippi. And I think that's uh, why it's important to think about, uh, even though you might not be near the coast geographically, uh, you know, the importance of not polluting rivers and because you're saying that, that thing is all eventually draining, I guess, through the past Google eventually to get to the Gulf of Mexico? Correct. So everything that happens upstream is going to end up downstream at some point, whether that's plastic trash or sediments from some kind of erosion situation. So. Yes, we always want people to be paying attention to what's happening in their part of the watershed because it's going to have an impact downstream. Okay. Uh, Got another caller on the line, so let's go to Shelby, who's called in from Jackson today. Good morning, Shelby. Go ahead. Good morning. How are you all doing today? Good. Good. I'm calling from Mississippi Spay and Neuter. We're a nonprofit that provides spay and neuter for cats and dogs, and I just wanted our listeners to know that cats can get pregnant as early as four months old and dogs can vary, but as early as five months old. So right now is breeding season. People want to make sure they get their pets fixed early rather than later after they're having puppies and kittens. All right. Very good. Uh, thanks for the call. And good a reminder there. That's uh, an important thing, you know, to try to keep track uh, of the, um, of the population. Plus, you know, I, when you see, Feral cats, especially, it's it's kind of sad because they're kind of out there on their own, and and you know that it could have been a nice home that someone had for them. But I obviously, want to try to keep those populations in check uh, so that all of our pets are, are well cared for and have a, have a good home. <clears throat> Here is another email that we received again last week. It says our daughter's never owned a dog, so she decided to begin by fostering a dog. Recently, took in an eleven-year-old healthy, sweet, playful Maltese who'd never been neutered. 
Uh, he came from an abusive situation. She adores the dog, but he whines and barks when she goes to work. The landlord has told the daughter the dog must go if she can't find a solution to the problem. The daughter, Our daughter wants to adopt the sweet little fellow, but she's concerned that no one else will take him at his age. Any suggestions on how they might remedy this situation? Well, that's going to be a difficult one because of the age of the dog uh, from the standpoint of habits that are already learned. Uh, the barking, it sounds like he probably has a separation anxiety uh, just as a guess. And uh, I don't know that uh, there's a lot that can be done to change that habit. Uh, you don't want to keep the dog on drugs uh, constantly to prevent the barking. There are some things that could be done possibly, and you need to talk to your vet about possibly uh, some things that could uh, calm the dog uh, and possibly not uh, continue in this light. But it is a very difficult thing to uh, change in a dog this age. Uh, I feel for it, but I don't know that I have any great suggestions of things that might work. Talk to your vet. See if there's something that he would recommend or she would recommend that uh, might have some calming effect without uh, sedation. Okay. Uh, what about the idea of maybe leaving something with owner scent on it, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a pillow, a stuffed animal, some sort of piece of clothing? Would, would that maybe help? Things might help, but, you know, one of the, there's probably two big reasons that animals are sent to a shelter. Number one, uh, cats especially, inappropriate litter box habits. I mean, that's probably number one with cats. And with dogs, then, exactly like this, we don't know why this dog is up for adoption. She's fostering it. Owner may have passed away. Something like that may have happened. But uh, the other is, uh, what shall I say, incorrigible to a certain extent from the standpoint of the habits of barking and uh, destructiveness in some cases. And that's why, you know, occasionally on the on the program we mentioned that if, if you're going to get a, a dog or a cat or any sort of pet that you do want to do your research first and know, you know, what kind of dog you're getting into. Different dogs have different sizes, obviously, different characteristics, different personalities. Uh, so, you know, for, for the dogs uh, or, or your future pets uh, benefit, make sure that you, you, you do some homework and, and know what you're getting into uh, before you buy a pet. The other thing would be to maybe talk to a dog trainer, see if they have some uh, pointers that might help with this. As I said, a dog that's aged, though, it's going to be difficult. Okay. Uh, we have another caller on the line. Uh, Kevin has called in this morning. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Uh, so my name's Kevin. Uh, I'm calling from Jackson, and uh, I've just moved to Mississippi about uh, six months ago. But uh, I'm a lifelong hiker and naturalist, and... Uh, my question uh, really is, uh, you know, moving into Mississippi and coming here into the spring, uh, I've noticed a, a lot of new uh, species of, like, uh, amphibians and reptiles that I'm, you know, just now starting to recognize. Yep. I was wondering what kinds of species are out there this time of year, and how is that going to change throughout the summer and going into the fall? There's a lot out there. <laughs> so... Um... There's a huge diversity of reptiles and amphibians down here. Um, so if you're interested in them, this is a great place to live. So I'm speaking as a native Michigander who moved down here three years ago. And uh, reptile and amphibian diversity is m much greater down here. Um, so, yes, we have something like 36 species of turtles alone in Mississippi. Um, almost as many snakes, I think 30-ish. 
so you're going to be seeing a lot of things. And what's happening right now, I think I'm seeing a lot of turtles. They're out yes. um, laying eggs. It's it's that season. Um, so the turtles are even the aquatic turtles are up coming up out of the their water habitats looking for a sheltered place to lay eggs and then heading back down. So we're seeing them on the roads um, all over the place. People keep bringing them to the center and calling and saying they're seeing injured turtles and we're observing them. Um, if you leave your porch lights on, you're probably getting a great population of uh, tree frogs this time of year. So they're also out. Uh, it's breeding season. I just found my first tadpoles yesterday, um, probably from narrowmouth toads. So it's peak breeding season for most of those reptiles and amphibians. So I think you're seeing a lot of activity. And I, I got a call from Tom Mann just this morning and during last night's rain, the salamanders started migrating across the roads. So if you see those, you can help them across a little bit. They're, they like to cross the road during the rain, you know, while the, while the pavement's still wet. That's much easier for them. And we're really noticing uh, snakes and turtles and lizards coming out after these rainstorms. I think the insects come back out after the rain and everybody's looking mm-hmm. for a warm spot to sit in and eat. <laughs> um, and I would encourage people, if you're seeing turtles on the road and it's safe to do so for you and the turtle, do think about stopping, moving it out of the road safely. Watch your fingers. We do have lots of snapping turtles. Um, the yeah. turtle is going to go in the direction that it is moving, and that's really important. If you're able to pick it up and move it in the direction that it's going, sometimes that's impossible. Um, but that turtle is going to turn around and go right back where it was headed if you if you do turn it into a different direction. Yeah, if you can't put it on the the side that it's moving, it's better just to leave it there. You know, if there's sometimes there's two if there's it's a four lane highway and you can't get it across that other lane, it's better to leave it there. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a really good, nice person and you want to go to the next exit and <laughs> take them back over there, but you don't want to take them too far from where they are. You, they right. they have home ranges. Mm-hmm. Kevin, thanks for the call and welcome to Mississippi. Hope that you'll enjoy exploring uh, the uh, the animals that oh, we have down here. And I would say. It's you invest in a Conant Peterson guide to the okay. reptiles by Roger Conant either online. You can get a, a great one for your for your telephone if you and, want to do and that. And I've found a great deal of success with the. Um, there's a variety of guides to the southeastern oh, yes. um, southeastern turtles, southeastern snakes, southeastern frogs and toads. I think I own all of them now. I use them all the time. <laughs> and they've got great pictures in them. Great those photographs. Are, yeah. Uh, one quick thing before we take our next break. Aaron, give us an idea, again, geographically, where, I think you mentioned 81-mile-long uh, Pascagoula River. Where in Mississippi is the Pascagoula? So sort of uh, meridian to the coast. Okay. That's a good geographic range to think about. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so we will take another break. When we get back, we've got some callers on the line. We've got some emails to share. And we're visiting today with our guest, Aaron Parker, who is the uh, program manager at the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. You can join in the conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're visiting with Aaron Parker, who is the program manager at the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. So we're learning more about the Pascagoula River, uh, one of the largest free-flowing rivers in the United States, uh, 81 miles long uh, from pretty much uh, uh, in the Meridian area south to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. 
Uh, so, um, Aaron, what are some of the um, animals that we might see uh, in that area? So the Pascagoula River is such a unique place that there are actually species that are endemic to the river. Now, endemic means they're only found there. Um, and so our yellow blotch sawback map turtle is one that comes to mind. Um, it's actually a fairly abundant species within the Pascagoula River Basin, um, but you won't find it at all outside of the, that area. Um, some of our other really special organisms are swallowtailed kites, which are nesting this time oh. of year in the Pascagoula and are just sort of that iconic bottomland hardwood species. They're just beautiful acrobatic um, birds. They're pretty insectivorous, so you'll often see them above farm fields that are um, being mowed and the insects are coming up. Um, prothonotary warblers, one of our beautiful warbler species, are nesting this time of year. Um, just They just fill the swamp with their call. Um, we've got some fish that are pretty unique. Uh, the Gulf sturgeon, part of its life is spent in the Gulf, uh, and then part of its life is spent up the Pascagoula, so the fact that there are no dams um, allows it to, to have that life cycle. Um, that's a pretty unique fish, a very primitive fish species. And so is the fact that uh, it is free-flowing, that idea that we talked about earlier about no man-made impediments or barriers, is that part of the reason why some of these unique uh, animals can call it home? Uh, yes. So they're able to just live out their life cycles without any impediments. Um, also, much of the land around the Pascagoula is protected, so that provides a buffer where they're not encountering cities, parking lots, whatever issues we might be encountering along other rivers. Um, well, I didn't ask this, but where is the uh, Pascagoula River Audubon Center located? So we're in Moss Point, Mississippi, right just behind the main street there. So we're in a beautiful location right on Rhodes Bayou, which is one of the bayous that leads into the Pascagoula River. Okay. Uh, we have another email here. Let's see. Um, help. I have a smallish red-brown bird eating my hummingbird's food. I have never seen this bird before, but it seems to be running my hummingbird's off. I love to watch the hummingbirds, and we normally have several that visit our feeder. We've had our feeder for about four years now, so I'm really missing them this year. We only have had one hummingbird that will fly by really fast and then leave. Any idea what might be stealing hummingbird food? So a lot of birds will visit hummingbird nectar feeders. Um, they're all attracted to sugar water. Uh, it doesn't have to be a hummingbird. Small red-brown bird sounds wren-like to me. Yeah, I'm thinking a little Carolina wren. A little Carolina wren, which has yeah. a lot of personality for its size. Oh, yeah, they're as much fun to watch as your hummingbirds, yeah. Um, uh, they're and pretty cool. One thing I would say, this time of year, uh, which I think surprises a lot of people, we think of hummingbirds as being really nectar-dependent. They're actually nesting right now, and they're actually feeding their young insects. Um, they sort of switch their diet. Um, their metabolisms are really quick, uh, and those young go from egg to fledgling in about 28 days, maybe a little bit less than that for a hummingbird. And so insects are fat and protein, and they provide all those nutrients. So a lot of times this year you're not seeing as many hummingbirds at your nectar feeder. They're totally fine. It's actually a good sign that they're nesting, they're feeding their young insects, um, and they'll be back at your feeder later in the summer once those young have fledged. Yeah, in, really, any time the hummingbird can get natural food, if you plant hummingbird plants instead of the feeder, that's a little bit better for them. So they really should just be getting some supplemental energy from that hummingbird feeder. And also, I guess if, if other birds are attracted to that sugar water, there's not going to be many effective ways to say, no, no, this is only for hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. I um, would just enjoy it personally. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to get, yeah. Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, some of the unique animals. Uh, what about uh, native plants? Uh, what is the native plant botanical garden? So 
our goal at the center is to teach people all about ways that they can do small things in your own backyard that might increase the biodiversity. Um, we're talking about Carolina wrens at your feeders, um, planting native plants. Uh, those are plants that are adapted to our conditions. So lots of rain, lots of humidity, not particularly cold winters. Um, but they provide, the, they're the bottom of the food chain. So they're providing food, nectar, shelter to our native pollinators, to our native birds, to our native wildlife. Um, and it's one of the things that you can do, even in a very small space, have a few milkweed, for example, which is really critical to our migrating monarch butterfly population. Um, and that's a small organism. So a small amount of milkweed uh, can do a big, can be really beneficial. Okay. Got some callers on the line. Let's uh, head back to the phone. So beginning in Beaumont, Sue has called in this morning. Go ahead, Sue. You're on the air. Hi. I'd like to ask uh, if, if there's any problem. I've heard that there's problems with alligators and uh, feral hogs along the Pascagoula River Basin, but I wonder if you've had any problems with nutria. Um, so, yes, there are nutria rats, unfortunately, all along the coast and into the Pascagoula River. And so for those of you that don't know, a nutria rat is a pretty large uh, mammal. Um, they do a lot of digging of plants, of the native plants that grow along the marshes and up into the swamp. Um, they're pretty detrimental, um, pretty destructive the, because they're digging and consuming a lot of plants. Um, and they're they're able to reproduce really rapidly. So we have large populations of them. And it's worth mentioning that they are not native to to this habitat. They are they're not. Um, and unfortunately, where they are, they tend to outcompete our native muskrats and things like that. And so they are a big problem. All right, Sue, thanks for your call. Is there any method that you would... I mean, I think part of the the uh, the allure of this is it's it's all natural. Are there any ways that you can somewhat kind of maybe try to limit their population? Well, I, I am not a trapper myself, but that is definitely one of the uh, control mechanisms. And um, I'll say that the wildlife management areas do encourage um, hog management, and I'm sure would encourage nutrient management as well. Okay. Uh, we'll stay on the phone lines. Uh, off to Osaka we go. Kathleen has called in today. Good morning, Kathleen. Hi, I got two quick questions. One, I have, uh, it looks like a residence of these very large lizards right under the steps. Now, they're at least a foot to maybe a foot and two inches long. Uh, one was really colorful, like bright blue, some yellow, some dark brown, and kind of lumpy across the back. And the others are a tannish, almost olive green, with kind of a rose-colored thing around their head, maybe under their neck, but they're huge. So, and I had not familiar with those at all. So that sounds like one of our skink species, which was is one of our native lizards, and they're a great asset to have living in front of your house because they eat a lot of insects. Yeah, and they're, they're big enough they can eat those big roaches. That's a broad-headed skink. Kink, yeah. Yes. Well, let me ask you this. Are they poisonous? I have cats, and I think one of my cats ate one or tried to. It got in the house, and I found something in the litter box no one should find. And uh, <laughs> I think she died a day, a day or so later. So I'm wondering, okay. are they poisonous to cats? The immature skink has a blue tail, and it's irresistible to cats. We have seen everything from death to a milder case of vestibular apparatus upset where the cat has its head tilted 
sometimes they will roll uh, till they come up against a wall or whatever else can stop them. But there is documented ev- evidence that that uh, certainly can have a toxin that can affect cats. And cats, you know, usually the cat plays with it, <clears throat> maybe kills it, but doesn't eat it. But uh, when they do, there can be some effect from that. Usually it's milder than death, okay? so. And then uh, I wanted to tell everybody that I had uh, a water trough last year, and uh, some sort of frog had tadpoles in there. I didn't have the heart to empty it. So I let it go, and lo and behold, over the last six months, I have watched this little frog grow up to be fairly large-sized frog. It's olive green. On the legs seem to be silvery with black kind of uh, blotches on it and very long, long, skinny little fingernails and toenails. <laughs> and it, he or she has made herself at home and will actually, God, here I'm saying how crazy I am, talk to me when I go out in the yard. She lets me know. She say I'll walk off and say good morning or something, and she's so used to me, she just hangs out. I even put a limb on the side of the water trough so she could use it to get in and out easier. That's another good insect eater, Sue, yeah. Or Kathleen, yeah. yeah. That's another good insect eater, yeah. Oh, y'all would happen to know what kind of frog that is, huh? Um, I'd go online, look at a leopard frog, see if that looks like her. What, what kind of sound does she make? God, don't make me do this without a drink. <laughs> I'd like to hear that. Oh, I, I really can't. Okay. I've gone far enough putting the, the limb up there for the frog to get out of the Well, go online and they'll, the, the, the frog songs will be on. Mm-hmm. Online and the pictures, and I'll bet you can find okay. your frog. And we're glad that you're taking care of your frog. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All oh, right. God. My neighbors would think I'm really tying one on out here talking to the frog. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Thank Kathleen. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your call. Uh, let's get another call in before our next break, and it goes to Jake in Loosedale. Good morning, Jake. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I do a lot of, of course, I live in Loosedale, Mississippi, George County, and the Pasadena River, it runs uh, right through here. Um, and, you know, so I was born and raised on the Pasadena River. Um, we used to go gator trolling and whatnot in the middle of the night, you know, just to look at the alligators and stuff. But uh, there's these little birds that roosted on the land, uh, you know, and it's the middle of the night, about in between 12 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And with all variety of colors, yellow, blue, um, and you could get right up to the limb you know, and grab the limb and take pictures and everything, and they would just be dead still. Uh, what are those? And you're saying you can grab the limb with the bird on it, and it doesn't move? Well, you know, sometimes, you know, just depending upon, you know, if you want to help the boat, you know, grab, pull the boat a little bit closer or whatnot, sometimes they would just, you know, just chill. And- how, how big a bird is it? Real small, real small. And it has red and yellow and green? No, no, no. We only seen yellow and blue. Oh, yellow and blue. So that description sounds like a prothonotary warbler, and they're very common in the Pascagoula. Really really bright bright yellow yellow and golden. Yeah, it was real bright. I mean, you could definitely And they're nesting. They're they're nesting cavities, um, holes in the trees, and so they're, they're really common on the river, but I've never had that experience at night of them 
But I know they're not really afraid of people. People, they're, they're not. You know, that's I've true. had them nest on the porch because we have a pond close by. But that, I guess they could be. Again, I would say look online and maybe start with prothonotary water. I mean, it, it was amazing at how close, you know, I mean, because we even had the, the flash on the uh, the camera, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it was just, you know, bed asleep. Oh, you've got a picture then. Send us a picture. Oh, well, I'd, I'd have to find it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. yeah. If you can find it, that that's, but yeah, that's. You know, is. I think we forget that these little birds are sleeping during the night, so it's <laughs> totally possible that they're just roosting for the night on these mm-hmm. limbs, and you just were lucky enough to encounter that, so. They say the, yeah. All right. Caught, you caught him in the headlights, <laughs> Uh, Jake, thanks for your call. And like I say, if you do find that picture and want to make sure that or try to get an ID, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll see if we can help you figure out what exactly it is. It's time for one last break this hour. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've been visiting throughout the hour with Aaron Parker, who is program manager at the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. Still time to work in a phone call. If you'd like to join the conversation, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. We'll be back to wrap up Creature Comforts after this. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. Here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Aaron Parker, who is the program manager for the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. So during the break, Libby, you were showing us uh, someone uh, texted you a picture of some creatures they found, I think you said, at their house, and you've got, we've figured out what they are. So Yeah, they've know. got a wooden house, and they said a lot of these are on their house. They're millipedes, and it's just... This is kind of a mating ritual, and this is the time of year for everything to get together. So the millipedes as well. If you find a bunch of millipedes on your house, you can enjoy them. Some, uh, they're a good food source for some animals, and then other things can't eat them because they've got a little, I think they taste bitter to some Mm -hmm. species of birds and things. But anyway, if, um, if they're where you don't want them, you can sweep them off with a broom, or you can just kind of. Enjoy watching them, and they'll be gone pretty soon. And uh, related to a centipede, I would guess. Yeah, they're similar. They're they're both insects, and they look a little, you know, supposedly millipede as though they have a million legs. They don't really have a million legs. I don't remember exactly how many, but no. But they have a lot of legs compared to the centipede. They have a lot of legs. If if you ever uh, need to keep someone busy, you could. Tell them to go count the millipedes. Count the legs. millipedes, yeah, or count the millipede legs, yeah. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, we're visiting with Aaron Parker from the Pascagoula River Audubon Center. Uh, Aaron, tell us about some of the attractions uh, at the center. Sure. So, everything we do at the center is designed to connect people to the Pascagoula River. So, we've got hiking trails, uh, kayaks. Uh, we have a tour boat. Um, All of our indoor exhibits uh, relate to the river. So we've got aquaria with turtles and snakes and lizards and fish, um, and those are changed out periodically. Um, We're about to open a brand new exhibit, a traveling exhibit with the Smithsonian called Waterways, um, and that will open on June 2nd, and that will be uh, on display for about five weeks. And it's all about water all over the world. Um, 
environmental, cultural, religious, and economic significance of water, um, which I think is really important here in Mississippi. It's such a wet, um, riverine state, so we're really excited to host that. Um, how would people get in touch? Uh, do you have a like a, a website? To- we absolutely do. So if you're interested in finding anything out about our programs or attractions or just coming to visit, it's pascagoularriver.audubon.org. And it's pretty up to date. We keep all our information on there. You can always follow us on Facebook as well. We're good at putting our events and our programs uh, on the on social media. Okay, so it was pascagoularriver.audubon.org. Correct. All right. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Let's invite Diana from Mobile. Good morning. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for taking my call. I have a Catahoula hound, uh, 50 pounds or so, that is very, very anxious and scared of weather. He will react every afternoon, even if the pressure just drops, even if we're not having thunder. He paces, he drools, etc. I gave him some ace promazine, uh, half the usual dose, about 12 and a half milligrams, and he had a pretty bad reaction to it. I, it looked like he wasn't even going to be breathing. So I need another option and uh, something that I can do to help this poor dog. He lived outdoors until he found us. He apparently had lived outside by himself for quite a while. So anything um, you could come up with that might be useful besides the drug would really be great. Sure. Thanks. Good questions, and there are a lot of animals that are uh, sensitive to pressure changes, sensitive to thunder, lightning, uh, and can cause some uncomfortable times for them and for you. Uh, Acepromazine can be used in a lot of cases. Uh, It's a tranquilizer, uh, and that does work in some cases. There are some other things. One of the things that has been used with some success is uh, what they call a thunder shirt. Uh, basically it involves a swaddling type effect. Uh, they have them for dogs at large. So you might try that if you haven't, uh, there are also some pheromone type collars that can help calm animals and it might help in this case. It might not, but it'd be worth a try. Talk to your vet about that. But the thunder shirt, uh, works in a lot of cases. It's not something that you would want to leave on all the time. But uh, certainly when you know that there are going to be thunderstorms and this sort of thing, you could try that. All right, Diana, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Here's uh, one last email for the hour. This uh, came to us earlier this week. Uh, We have a a two-and-a-half-year-old Great Dane. Over the weekend, two large bumps or cysts appeared on her rear hips on either side of her tail base. Uh, It's included a couple of pictures. They're the size of a tennis ball. She's always been very healthy and doesn't really act like anything is wrong. Any idea what could be the issue? Uh, they say they're going to take her to the vet as soon as they get paid, here, sure. probably at the end of the month. Sure. Uh, it probably is not painful. Uh, it's where the point of the pelvis comes out and the dog sits down. I believe that's what uh, looked at the picture. And uh, if they sit down just all of a sudden uh, on a hard uh, floor or tile, Certainly, it could cause what's called a seroma. If you want to think of something that looks kind of like a tennis elbow where you get uh, fluid uh, buildup, and this is probably what has happened. You do need to talk to your vet about that when you get a chance, and they may want to drain that. Usually, they're somewhat self-limiting and uh, should not get any larger than that. If it does, obviously, it's more serious. So when you can, let's get this dog into your vet. Uh, but I think when we were looking at the pictures, you said the one thing you thought was a little bit unusual was that it was on b- both sides. That's true. And uh, it, it's a little unusual to see. It looks like one side was larger. It may have been the photograph. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, dogs, you can provide uh, cushions for them. You can provide a hammock for them. A lot of times they just rather be on the concrete floor or a hard surface rather than something like that. So, but do talk to your vet about that. It'd be important for a veterinarian to see that uh, dog. Okay. I've uh, got about a minute left, Aaron. If someone wanted to get involved with uh, learning more about or advocating for protecting the Pascagoula River or other rivers in Mississippi, what would be a way to do that? So there's lots of groups uh, around the state that work on a whole bunch of different river issues. So uh, the Pascagoula River Basin Alliance is ours, but there are others. Um, And so looking those up on the Internet and finding your river basin, um, and I would encourage people to get involved because water really is an issue that uh, connects all of us. We can't live without clean water. Um, And there's lots of ways to get involved, um, whether that's through education or outreach or just learning more about the issues in your particular river. Um, And I'll always encourage people to visit our wildlife management areas around our rivers because they're such an important and I think underutilized resource. Go bird watching, learn what's out there. If you're a hunter, go hunting. If you're a fisher, go fishing. If you're interested in wild plants, go exploring, but just get out there and appreciate them is probably the first step. All right, very good. And there is a Pearl River Keepers. You okay. can find them online. All right, very good. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating 20 years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And from contributions from listeners like you. Our show was produced today by Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Aaron Parker, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next it's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.